0: Well, good morning, church family. And uh and especially just a, a welcome to if you're joining with us, if visiting. Thank you so much for for being here. Thanks Austin for for being here. I know, you know, as a pastor, like usually we got stuff going on Sunday mornings, but but it's uh, great to meet you finally and uh yeah, so Austin and everybody else who's who's visiting with us. Just thank you. I'm is uh, my name's Brendan, one of the pastors here and uh, you know this this past year we 've been um, going through the book of first Corinthians and we 're kind of diving back into that that 's where we 're at so so yesterday uh, yesterday evening, I left my left my windows open because uh, it was so hot and muggy yesterday, and then I came downstairs this morning with the windows open and it was like nice and brisk and cold inside. Um, my, my wife hates it i 'm sure, but I love it because finally it feels like fall. it took a while. Uh and so the, the the cool, crisp air this morning reminded me that it is only sixty-nine days until Christmas. I know, yes. <laughs> Santa's coming. Uh, <laughs> no, but before Christmas, sorry, we before Christmas comes Thanksgiving. Um and, and actually before that comes Halloween, like I know like one holiday at a time, but I actually want to talk about Thanksgiving for for a couple, couple minutes if you if you'll let me. Uh because I, I love Thanksgiving. Uh, Not just because I get to gorge on green bean casserole. You know what? You can leave. (laughs) No. (laughs) Green bean casserole is the main dish of Thanksgiving. And if you disagree with that, I'm just sorry, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm not sure how I can come back from that. (laughs) I've lost the trust of the people. No, but... uh, (laughs) I love Thanksgiving, not just because of green bean casserole or whatever, uh, but because of what the holiday is, of course. You know, Thanksgiving, it's a time to gather with family, to celebrate our blessings, to, to thank God for his goodness, even just kind of what we were doing this morning, of hearing these testimonies of God's faithfulness and kindness. Like, that's what Thanksgiving is all about. And, you know, in our minds, we probably all have this sort of Norman Rockwell vision of what Thanksgiving should be. But the reality, of course, is that it doesn't always work out like that, right? You know, sometimes maybe you have these beautiful Thanksgiving experiences that you can you know, treasure all year all year long, but, but often, yeah, it's often it just doesn't, doesn't go like that. Um, and whether it's, whether it's the, the crowds um, going and, you know, trampling each other, uh, li- lining up Thanksgiving evening to go and, you know, those Black Friday deals, um, not to mention all the workers who had to skip dinner to go and, you know, work at Walmart. Um, or whether it's if you have ha- have ever had a Thanksgiving like this, where family drama breaks out. Uh, no, <laughs> but family drama or politics or like whatever, like, you know, that, that all of a sudden Thanksgiving dinner gets heated. Um, Thanksgiving can get ugly. And, and, you know, the divisions and the ugliness in our culture, the, the rabid consumerism, the, the divisions, the strife, the family breakdowns, it can all kind of seep into what's supposed to be this beautiful, special day and just poison it. And, you know, maybe a lot of us have had that experience. And when that happens, we really feel the loss because, like, this was supposed to be this special day, this special moment And it's like, yeah, like, okay, like, let's save the consumerism and divisions for the other 364 days of the year. Can we just have Thanksgiving? Um, Because Thanksgiving, it's supposed to be this day set, set apart. And when you lose, when it gets poisoned, you feel the loss. And when we come in 1 Corinthians, this next section in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, that's basically what's happening here. Uh, Paul has been addressing the the messes in the Corinthian church for, for this entire letter. And boy, the Corinthian church is a hot mess. Uh, you know so far we've seen we've seen divisions in the church. We've seen people following their favorite leader, kind of puffing up their spiritual credentials, then using doctrine as weapons against each other. We've seen pride and selfishness. We've seen how you know in this church, sexual immorality wasn't just tolerated, it was celebrated. People in the church were suing each other. It was like a whole a whole lot of mess. But when we get to chapter eleven, uh, this this particular mess, at least for me this this, this one really just takes the cake. Um, the church's celebration of communion, the lord's Supper, had just gone completely off the rails, and Paul steps in to to address what's going on in this church and what we're going to see is some of the same themes that he has been hammering the whole letter are going to come up again here first so if you have if you have a Bible. Uh, you can open up to First Corinthians chapter 11. We're, we're going to put it up on the screen. Starting in verse 17, Paul kind of addresses. He's like, hey, guys, we've got to talk about this now. Here's, here's what he says. Paul says, in the, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. It's like, it's like bad. You're, you're putting you in time out for this. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. But now he's going to explain what this particular divisions he has in mind are. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one, each one goes ahead with his own supper. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? <laughs> He says that. It's like, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Paul's like speechless, flabbergasted. Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the, the situation that he addresses is people are getting drunk at communion. I mean, maybe, maybe I shouldn't laugh, but like it's, it's so bad, it's almost funny. Like what a mess! Uh, like can, can you can you imagine? It's like we passed around the communion wine and church got crazy this week. <laughs> um, and this is maybe why we use grape juice. Is this you know <laughs> crisis averted? We use grape juice here. And so this this craziness, this chaos, happening in the Corinthian church of people literally getting drunk at communion. Does the fact that we, have, that we use grape juice, does, it, does that mean, okay, this isn't our problem. We can, we can skip this, go on, to, go on to spiritual gifts in the next chapter. That sounds more fun. It's like, okay, you know, going through this letter, I see we've got divisions. We have pride. We have immorality and selfishness. But, you know, like at least we're not getting drunk at communion. So we can just skip this section because we don't have this problem. Or do we see what exactly is the problem here? This is, this is really interesting to look at this text to see what Paul says about this. Like what exactly is the problem here? Uh, Because, you know, obviously, okay, drunkenness is bad. Paul says in Ephesians, don't get drunk on wine, you know, communion or otherwise. But that's not actually the primary problem he points out here. That's not the main issue that Paul has with what's happening in this church. The, 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 the drunkenness, the chaos in the, their communion celebration is just a symptom of the problems. Look at, look at verse 22. He says, he, he says this, he says, Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Here's the issue he puts his, his finger on. That, that might seem strange to us and because of how we do church and how we do communion, but we're going to unpack this to understand. See, Paul sees in the, in the Corinthians' communion chaos, he sees in their church the divisions of rich and poor, so prevalent in the Corinthian society, so prevalent in ours, and he sees these divisions poisoning this sacred meal. And so to, to understand Paul's rebuke here of why he has such a problem with this, uh, we have to understand how the early church functioned. what, what a typical, what a typical gathering of the Corinthian church would look like. Cause, cause you know, they didn't have buildings like this. They didn't have, you know, auditorium seating and, and, and air conditioning. They, they met in people's homes. Um, it was usually the, usually the church would meet in the home of a wealthy believer who, you know, like had the space to host everybody. And and also, uh, also most people didn't have Sundays off. You know, Sunday wasn't a day of rest. That that was a foreign concept in, in the Roman Empire. Um, Sunday wasn't a day off. It was a, so for most people in the church, it was a work day, um, just like the other six days of the week. And so the church would usually gather in the evening, after work, at someone's house, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. What what we do with our with. With these little things, which, by the way, we are going to celebrate communion today. If you, if you missed this on the way in, you can, you, you can get one. Um, and we'll have ushers back there later. Um, so the celebration of the Lord's Supper for them was actually supper. It was dinner time. Uh, the church ga- and the church would gather uh, in, you know, in someone's home for this sacred holy meal instituted by Jesus himself. And it would be followed with the singing and preaching and encouragement. And, and that was church. That was church. And so, you know, pro- probably for us, the, the closest modern picture we would have would be something like our small groups. You know, George was just saying how, how this month, you know, is small group open house. We really want to see everyone in this church connected into small groups. Uh, And so we're encouraging people, you know, this month to get out and visit small groups, find one that's a good fit. Because that, that picture of, of gathering in someone's home, maybe share a meal, fellowship, encouragement, Bible study, that, that that's not that different from what church looked like in the first century. And, you know, by the way, that, that's not to say that our Sunday morning way of doing church is bad. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just different, because church looks different when there's 20 people versus 200 or, or 400. So, you know, it's, it's a good problem to have that we need to have space for everybody. Uh, but, but it's also why we want to see people in small groups, because if Sunday morning is all we have, we're, we're missing something. And so, so that's the context of what church looked like in the first century, and, and that helps us understand the problem that Paul is addressing. Uh, l- listen to this. This is a kind of a long paragraph. Kind of have it up here on the screen from Craig Blomberg. Uh, this is his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He, he unpacks what was going on here a little bit. He says, once again, Paul refers to divisions. That in verse 18, he talks about divisions. But here, he's not thinking of the rival parties that separate various congregations, like he was earlier in, in the book. He says, but now Paul's talking about the gulf between rich and poor within a given house church. The minority of well-to-do believers, including the major financial supporters, those rich uncles, (laughs) the major financial supporters and owners of the homes in which believers met, they would have their leisure time and resources to arrive earlier and bring larger quantities and finer food than the rest of the congregation. Following the practice of hosting festive gatherings in ancient Corinth, they would have quickly filled the small private dining room. And latecomers, you know, the majority, who probably had to finish work before coming on Saturday or Sunday evening. There was, as of yet, no legalized day off in the Roman Empire. Latecomers would be seated separately in the adjacent atrium or courtyard. Those who could not afford to bring a full meal or a very good one did not have the opportunity to share with the rest in the way that Christian unity demanded. And so what was happening was, whether it was through intentional prejudice or unintentional, just callous selfishness, whether it was unintentional or intentional, what was happening was that the social and economic and racial divisions present in the Corinthian culture were shaping the Corinthian church. And that was poisoning their celebration. What was meant to be a celebration of their unity in Christ was in fact further dividing them. And the rich people with the seats up front in the dining room feasting and celebrating and getting drunk while everyone else in the church scrounging for scraps. And R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he writes this. He says, Paul, when we're talking about communion here, he says, Paul isn't so much interested in the communion elements, the bread, the wine, the distribution. He says, this is a social justice issue here. This is marked social stratification. The irony here is that the very thing that was supposed to ground their unity, the sign and seal of Christ's work, had become the place where their divisions were expressed. The thing that was supposed to eradicate their divisions was exacerbating them. Rather than reflecting the self-giving love of Christ, they were accumulating for themselves. And he, and, and he finishes, he says this, he says, they have twisted the sacrament from being about Christ's accomplishment to being a sacrament of their own accomplishments. It no longer reflects their need. It reflects their prominence and importance. Oh, the Corinthian church getting it so Backwards. And the meal of the unity of God's people celebrating Christ's accomplishment was becoming yet just another way for the rich to flaunt their wealth and enjoy their lives, and everyone else in the church suffered for it. And so this, this is the real tragedy of the Corinthian communion chaos. More than just the ridiculous spectacle of people getting drunk on the communion wine, it was the these, the importation of cultural divisions into the church that was creating haves and have-nots it was creating hoarding and exclusion it's it really it's it's the, that thanksgiving feast marred by family squabbles this breaking of this what was supposed to be beautiful and sacred turned ugly because of divisions and in the church family that's not how it's supposed to be in a community truly shaped by Jesus' self-giving love, there are no haves and have-nots. There are no second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. There are no, okay, you sit up here, and you sit in the back. Nobody gets leftovers at this feast. Nobody gets scraps of grace at this cross. And so this is the tragedy of Corinth it's that in how they had turned this celebration inside out, they had turned the gospel itself inside out and rendered it unrecognizable. And so you see, so Paul in in his flabbergasted speechlessness of saying, what, what am I going to do with you? Corinthians see Paul views that issue of this social stratification and prejudicial division in the church he views that as a fundamental gospel issue because they are contradicting the gospel said so the church's practice contradicted what the church preached it was gospel doctrine denied by this church's gospelless culture and that when I say, oh, is this our problem? I'm going to say yes and no. Because on one hand, no, which we just saw today, testimony after testimony of God's kindness and love expressed through this body. Church, you, you do the opposite of this really well. You care for one another. You love one another. You serve one another. As, as Karen said, I, I wrote this down, when Jesus shows up, he looks like the church. You do this really well. And yet, I think it's good for us to look at this text and look at this problem the Corinthians had because this, this issue of Gospel doctrine being denied by a gospelless church culture is really easy to do. So easy. See, all I have to do, if I want to be like Corinth, all I got to do is insist on my privileges instead of yielding my place. All I have to do is fight for my rights instead of laying them down. All I have to do is look out for number one, instead of considering others to be more significant. And in doing so, I have denied with my life what I preach with my lips. It's so easy to do so easy. And so what Paul does for for the Corinthians and and for us is he he takes us by the hand and he leads us back to the heart of the matter. He leads us back to the night before the cross, when Jesus lays down his life and launches this new feast for God's people. And Paul reminds us as we keep reading that this gospel we preach, this death, we proclaim this cross that we lift high. It's about the self giving love of the savior. And the Savior's self giving love is intended to turn into self giving love on our part as well. And so in explaining communion to us again in the, in the context of these, of these economic divisions in the, in the church, he's going to give us a little refresher course in maybe what I'll call gospel economics. So let's keep reading. Verse 23 it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. This is my body, which is for you, for you. Note those words, do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says, my, this is my body, which is for you, for you. Don't, don't miss those words, because in, in those two words, for you, is the entirety of the gospel doctrine that we proclaim. This is, this is Jesus saying, this is, this is me for you. Jesus saying, all of me and everything I am given for you. This is me. This is my body. This is my very life for you. See, he broke this bread on that Thursday night. And then he was broken on Friday. As he stood in the place of sinners, as he took our sin, as he took our punishment on the cross, nails pierced his hands and feet, a spear rent his side, and he, as Isaiah 53 says, was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that should have fallen on us fell on him, brings us peace by his wounds. We are healed his body for you. And he raised that cup on Thursday night, the cup of, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant, a new way of access to God with new forgiveness and new mercy and new grace. And he raised that cup on Thursday. And on Friday, he drank the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment against my sins. It was his blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. It's Jesus saying, it's me for you. The perfect savior offering himself as the perfect substitute. And this, this is love. Oh church, this, this, this is love. First John four says it this way: He says, "In this is love, not that we loved God, but that because you know we don't, not as we should, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation." Big word there; it means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, the one who stands in our place and says me instead of you. So this. That Thursday night and that dark Friday is Jesus loving us, sinners though we be, loving us all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's Jesus giving all of himself, it's, it's Him saying, It's me for you. this is the death that our bread and our cup proclaim this is the death this is the death that our lives should proclaim because this gospel of Jesus saying me for you is meant to shape us into a community where we say that to each other where we say to one another all of me for you This is what it means to be the body of Christ. It's for us to start acting like his hands and his feet, like the stories, the testimonies that we heard today. It's where we say to one another, I'm here for you. That's what 1 John 4 there says, right? It says, this is love that God loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another because so often, like again, like we heard in our, in these testimonies today, this is how God loves us. When Jesus shows up, he looks like the church because you're his hands and you're his feet and you're his heart. And so Paul reminds us of that Thursday night, that gospel foundation, that love, the, the beating heart of what this Sunday celebration is to be all about. And then and now Paul moves us from a reminder of that, a reminder of those gospel economics, that this is a self-giving love, a me-for-you kind of love. And now he prompts us to reflect on that. Prompts us to reflect on that. Verse 27, he says, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. Concerning the body and blood of the Lord, and re- remember this. So this church, with this with having this completely mixed up and backwards, he's got some strong words for them. I, I I think by God's grace, we're in a much better place. Like I like I said, we've got so many things right here, and so let maybe some of the sober warnings here cause us to reflect with thankfulness on God's kindness to this church. But he says he says. Whoever, whoever Corinth drinks, drinks and eats unworthily is guilty concerning this body and blood. What what does that mean? What does that mean? Because when he says, when he says an unworthy manner, he doesn't mean someone who doesn't deserve this bread and cup. Because the reality is we're all unworthy right? Like that's the whole point. (laughs) The, The whole point is that we are unworthy. That's why there was a body broken. That's why there was blood shed. That's why Jesus gives himself in our place because we are unworthy. The only people invited to this table are unworthy people. Unworthiness in fact is the very thing that qualifies us for grace. It's the only thing that qualifies us for grace. It's the only thing that we can bring. The only thing we can bring to commend ourselves to God is need. And saying, I am unworthy. That's the only thing that gets us in the door. So what does Paul mean when he says, don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner? He means this. He means don't eat or drink in a way that is out of step with this great and wonderful grace. Which means, I think, that the way to eat or drink unworthily is to pretend that you are worthy, to get it into your mind somehow that you're better. That, that Paul is saying, is what disqualifies you. And that's because that's what the rich Corinthians were doing, right? Wittingly or unwittingly, they were proclaiming an anti-gospel with their feasts, an anti-gospel that said, We are worthy, we are important, we are better, come and celebrate us. And Paul is saying, Don't do that. Verse twenty eight says, So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Again, Paul's got some strong words for the Corinthians here says examine yourself kind of look look inward take a look in the metaphorical mirror and examine yourself and this this phrase here whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body this of course this has caused a lot of confusion and consternation in church history right of like what is the significance of the Lord's of the Lord's Supper uh, when Jesus says this is my body what exactly does he mean there and so you know Catholics for for example um, believe that in the Lord's Supper that the bread and wine Wine really do become in a in a real metaphysical way the body and blood of Christ. and so they they point to this verse and they say, well you know that if we partake of communion without recognizing that transubstantiation that we eat and drink judgment on ourselves and the the, the problem with that I, I think is that it kind of, that kind of misses the point of what Paul has been saying in this chapter and all along through this, through this letter. That remember what, what R. Kent Hughes said. He said that Paul's concern here is not with the communion elements themselves, but with what communion is meant to show, this social justice issue in the church. That is, that the church, the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, should represent who Jesus actually is. That's Paul's concern here. See, right before this, in chapter 10, Paul introduced this idea. Paul introduced this in chapter 10. when He little dropped this nugget, this little breadcrumb he was going to come back to. Chapter 10, verse 17, he said, Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, because we partake of the one bread. The picture there is that they're, they're passing around a, a, a loaf of bread, and they're like, that's how it worked. And, and it's each of us taking, taking a piece, and together we are one whole, because we are one body sharing one bread. So that's the picture that Paul has of communion in his mind. It's, that it's Jesus' self-giving love binding us together as one body, And so when he says, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, he says what he means is anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing this is the body of Christ. This is what communion is about. It's this family. It's this celebration of us as many becoming one because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. He says, if you miss that, you have missed communion. And so eating and drinking without discerning the body, I don't think that Paul is really speaking at all about what metaphysically is actually happening with the the juice and the cracker. He's saying in this feast, Jesus says to us, me for you, and so we say to one another, me for you. We are one body. This is what the Corinthians were getting wrong. Their, their feast proclaimed me for me. And so what Paul is saying is anyone who eats or drinks without linking arms with their brother and sisters in Christ as one family, as one body contradicts the very meaning of the Lord's supper. And that, he says, is something that God takes really seriously. So he says, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. There's some sober words. He goes on and he continues. He says, this is why Corinthians, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. He says like that, that God's hand of discipline is heavy on this church. This is why things are going poorly for you because you are so scorning the very nature of what it means to be one body in Christ. He says, if we really judged ourselves truly, if we really looked in that mirror and reflected on our hearts, then we wouldn't be judged. And he says this in verse 32, a little word, this is actually a little word of comfort. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul is not talking about here judgment as in like the wrath of God on sinners. Because that was taken away from you, child of God, on the cross. What he's talking about is God's fatherly discipline. of God saying, I love you too much for you to continue in this sin. And so I will, I will pull you out of the fellowship if I have to. I will put you in time out. God's fatherly discipline to purify his church and change our hearts so that, Paul says, we may not be condemned along with the world. Because when you start acting like this, it's just like the world. All the same divisions running through, all the same squabbles, and God insists that Jesus' church reflect Jesus' self-giving love. That the church should look like Jesus when we show up, when we gather together. And so verse 33 says, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, (laughs) wait for one another, (laughs) it's like, please, for the love of God, just like, hold, (laughs) hold on, wait a second. But actually that word wait literally means share with one another. It says you're, you're one body united by Jesus' self-giving love. So he says, so, so give of yourselves, give yourselves, share me for you. This is the whole point. So if I could have the, the worship team, the worship team come up because now, see, after, I don't know, after these hard words from Paul, I'm almost like a little nervous to like take communion together, but let's do what Paul tells us to do. Let's do what God's word tells us to do and examine ourselves. So if you, if you did forget to pick one of, the, one of these up, you can grab them in the back there and some, some, some ushers, ushers have them. And I don't think we need to be scared when we come to this celebration. Despite Paul's strong words to the Corinthians. Because remember, when he says, don't eat and drink unworthily, What that's calling us to do is to lay down our worthiness at the foot of the cross, to lay down whatever we think might commend us to God and make us look good to others. Whatever I think I've got going for me is what Jesus calls me in this moment to lay down. And so that's scary. But that's freedom. That's that's grace. That's mercy of God saying, you don't need to carry that chip on your shoulder. Can I, can I have it? And so what have you brought in here this morning that makes you feel worthy? What, what are you leaning on? What do you, what are you looking to? What, what is it that you have brought in here? That makes me think I, I I got it together. I'm I'm okay. I'm good enough. I mean, maybe maybe like the Corinthians, it's your wealth, your status, your your race like you you've got it. Your political affiliation. There's one of those cultural divisions that we bring in. Maybe it's your track record that you have brought in here an impeccable track record. You have checked all the boxes. You have done all the spiritual things. You you got it. You got your life together. Maybe you have brought in just the fact that you're here this morning. You're like, Hey, well, I came to church. That's gotta give me at least some brownie points in God's book, right? No. There, there are no, there are no brownie points to be earned in God's book. Jesus paid it all. Maybe you're here and you're just like, well, at least I've, at least I'm better than that person sitting in front of me. But here's where we lay that down. And here in this bread and this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. That means again and again and again. We say to ourselves and we say to this body, this church family, that Jesus' death is enough. Jesus' blood is enough. That sacrifice is good enough. And that's what makes me worthy. Not all the stuff I've brought in here that I'm laying down at your feet. So we proclaim he has died for me and he has risen for me and he will one day come again. So let's do this. Let's stand. Let's stand together. And let's just t- take a moment of quiet reflection. Examine yourself, Paul says. What are you laying down right now at the foot of the cross? What's he, what's he calling you? What, is, what does he have his finger on? Let's take a moment, pray, reflect, and then we will take this together. Jesus we we come unworthy and beloved we come loved by you not because of our accomplishments our pedigree our resume I'm loved by you because of grace. Lord, this is a hard pill for proud people like us to swallow, but here we are Lord in need of grace, maybe even in need of grace to believe that. And so here we are in need, which is what you have told us is the only thing we can bring to this table. And so, Lord, help us by your grace to lay down the things that we try to prop up our own sense of self-worth with. But we lay them down at the foot of the cross. Lord, and we take it in in their place, body broken and blood shed. And we say, Lord, with faith, we say that's enough because Jesus, you are enough. So here, Lord, we proclaim to ourselves and to one another, your death until you come, Jesus, you have died, you have risen and you will come again. Church, let's take together the bread broken for us. this cup, this new covenant, the blood poured out for us. And now church, let's, let's sing. This is a feast. This is a celebration. This is Thanksgiving. Let's come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide and church, we are loved. So let's sing.